doing something that is meaningful, that allows you to continually grow and ultimately lets you have fun while you're doing it. And you define what fun is, right? So that's, I, that's where I feel like I'm um, very fortunate to be successful right now. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm learning and growing all the time. Um, and, you know, to be clear, I mean, growth means you're making mistakes, right? And you're, I mean, that's kind of the only way it really happens well. Hi, and welcome to the Sliced Podcast, where we share startup stories from founders, investors, and CEOs from across the globe. A little bit about our platform, Startup Blog Post, is that we're a community where aspiring entrepreneurs and venture capital ecosystem stakeholders can share meaningful insights, engage with colleagues and peers, and stay informed. Hi, and welcome back to the Sliced Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Ahrens. Today's guest is Mark Frank, co-founder and CEO of Sondermind. Sondermind is redefining mental health care to make it easier to find and access approachable therapy with both online and in-person appointment options available. Mark is a serial entrepreneur and has helped build Sondermind into what it is today. Hi, Mark. How are you? Good. How are you, Emily? Good. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. So excited to get to know you. I have some notes in front of me, and it seems like you've done quite a bit. You've been very busy. Uh, you could say that. <laughs> so first off, which I don't know, are you from Colorado? No, I'm not. Okay. When did you come here? I moved to Colorado in late 2000 uh, when I was stationed at Fort Carson in Colorado Springs. Okay. So that's what first brought me to Colorado. Uh, I was fortunate to be able to choose where I wanted to go after uh, graduating from undergrad and, and being commissioned into the Army. So I selected Fort Carson and uh, moved out here, was here for five years, except for the year in Iraq, and then left in 2005 and went off to business school in Chicago and then worked there for a couple of years doing investment banking. But then I moved back here in 2009. Awesome. I have a friend whose husband is in the Army, and I, they had to like write a list of their top three mm -hmm. places, and you kind of hope you get... Yeah, it's one. interesting. Coming out of West Point, it's basically your class rank determines uh, what your first, like how much choice you have. Mm -hmm. And so all through my time as a cadet, that was my only goal was like, I don't really care about being like, you know, in the top 1% or whatever. I just want to be high enough where I can control and go where wherever I, go. I want. And so yeah. I was fortunate to be able to have that option. That's awesome. So yeah, that's actually the first point on my notes anyway, is that you are a U.S. Army captain. I, yeah, I got promoted a couple times, and then by the time I left, I was a captain, which That's is pretty awesome. normal for, like, within the five years after commissioning. Did you come from a military family, or was this just something you personally wanted to do? Sort of. So my I, I moved around a lot, actually. So I was born in Atlanta. I lived in Tokyo for three years. I lived in Germany for three years. Um, and then, interestingly, always back to the same house in Atlanta. Oh. Uh, so, like, the house that my parents live in still today is the one that they brought me home to from the hospital when I was born. Really? Yeah. Um, That's cool. Even after moving? Even not with all those moves overseas. Wow. So, my dad worked for IBM, and uh, he was in the Army but way before mm -hmm. I was. So, not really a military family, but when I was in Germany for two of the three years that I was there, I went to school on the Army base as one of the expats. expats. Mm -hmm. And um, my older sister, who's about 12 years older than me, 
she enlisted in the army right after high school. So we we didn't have a lot of money for college and stuff like that. So um, she enlisted, did two years as a as a soldier in the army, active duty, and then ended up uh, getting out and finishing her college degree at University of Florida in three years, and then you know was debt free and was yeah. uh, was working yeah. and doing her thing. That's awesome. Well, hey, thank you for your service. Oh, it was an honor. <laughs> so army captain, and then you went to Chicago. So after the army, was your focus finance? Because it looks like you went to Morgan Stanley, or was that just a happy accident? Or Yeah, that was an accident. So it's, I mean, I I was interested in all kinds of things. Um, I actually had a, I have a pretty entrepreneurial just nature. I mean, even in high school, even before high school, I would do like little side like businesses side gigs and stuff and like stuff. that. Um, I was really interested in computer technology. Like I started programming when I was in high school. I studied computer science. It was a major at West Point. But you don't do any of that in the army. Uh, if, I mean, there's very, very few people who end up doing that. And coming out of West Point, you don't you don't do that. You go and lead soldiers. Right. Um, I actually got a master's while in the army in computer information systems because I was sort of bored and had. Time. I actually see that you have three masters. I, it's ridiculous for somebody who doesn't like school. Um, <laughs> that you're. This would say differently. This would say it differently, seems you right? Love school. It seems that I love school, and I <laughs> never like studying. I never like. I don't take notes. Um, so I did that just mostly because I was bored, and I wanted to take advantage of, of tuition assistance uh, yeah. that the army was offering. Right. And so, and then I came back from Iraq, and I got a real estate license here in Colorado. I did that on the side for my last year in the army, just like on the weekends, and so. I, like I said, I've always just tried to fill my time with stuff. Right. Um, went to bartending school for wow. a little while. <laughs> well, you've done it all. <laughs> Is there anything you haven't tried? Lots of things. <laughs> lots of things still on the list. Um, but so when I was getting out of the Army, I, I was kind of like, I don't really know what I want to do. Um, I knew I wanted to do lots of different things, but I I couldn't narrow things down. What, what I've realized about myself is it's much easier um, to cross things off the list than it is um, to circle them. And so I can say, okay, here's like, here's 20 things that I might want to do. Now let me look at them and kind of prioritize them as opposed to say, okay, let me like, let me for sure say that's the thing I really want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ended up, you know, doing the, taking the GMAT and doing the tests and stuff like that and threw my name in the ring for a handful of business schools and, uh, and actually went to Kellogg mostly because I did not want to do finance. So interestingly, I read all these. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, right? So I mm-hmm. read books like Monkey Business and Liar's Poker and talk to a lot of uh, other academy grads, service members who had gone to business schools and done things after that. And I remember telling my, my wife at the time, I said, well, I know for sure what I'm not going to do, which is investment banking. And, uh, and I was really deciding between like Wharton or Kellogg, and I decided to go to Kellogg. I said, oh, I'll do, cons- I'll do consulting. And... I went to went to Chicago, and before school started, I lined up an internship for myself, um, kind of pre-business school, and it was for uh, a guy who had done consulting for his whole career. Um, he was like a late, you know, late sixties, early seventies West Point grad, Harvard Business School grad, um, and I thought, and he's working, you know, he's a managing director of this advisory firm, so I was like, okay, cool, I'm going to be under his wing for the summer. I'll learn if I like consulting. Lo and behold, what he was advising was actually mergers and acquisitions. So he had spent a long 30 years doing like strategic and management uh, strategy consulting. But uh, the latter part of his career, he had done a lot of mergers and acquisition integration work. And so I ended up being at this M&A firm, and I really found it interesting. And more than that, at the end of the summer, he basically was like, Mark, I think you'd be fine if you want to really go work for McKinsey or Bain or something like that. Go for it, and you'll learn a lot, and it'll be great. But he's like, you will 
probably want to claw your eyes out after about six months. Um, he's like, you just want to get you just want to get stuff done. Like that's kind mm-hmm. of your thing. You you're like very action oriented. Uh, and he's like, consulting is much more sort of thought and strategy oriented. And let's like think about what the framework is, and then mm-hmm. let's come up with the elegant solution. Whether or not it gets done is kind of immaterial to us because we're going to be on to the next project by that point. Right. So I took that to heart, and uh, and then kind of crossed that off the list. And so then I was like, well, now what? So I ended up just kind of going to all the different, uh, you know, briefings that they do at business school and, and different companies come. And mm-hmm. uh, I ended up investment banking for the summer and found that I really enjoyed it. And then um, went to Morgan Stanley and did healthcare, which was uh, something that was really interesting to me because my ex was a nurse, became a nurse practitioner. Uh, and it's just such a big, a big, you know, part of our lives. And it's yeah, so inefficient. Yeah, my mom's a nurse, actually. Yeah, it's just like so screwed up, right? Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to learn about healthcare, um, and I thought, you know, doing so in an M&A setting was a pretty pretty good way to do so. That's awesome, and probably like a foreshadowing of perhaps what was to come for you in the yeah. healthcare space, right? very much. And so then you weren't in finance long, because then you co-founded a company. Yeah, so I did it for a couple of years. I mean, what, what's interesting is I joined banking in 2007, um, and I was there from 2007 to 2009, and there were a lot, a was a lot of change. Year, yeah. A tough three years. So I actually, um, there were all these cuts. Like my associate class, uh, like in the group I was in, there were nine of us when I joined. Um, and by the time I left, there were three of us left, me and the other two guys. Wow. Um, so there have been all these cuts. And actually, I was in a really good position, but my learning curve had just gone from being really, really steep to relatively flat. And the job in, in investment banking shifts from kind of financial analysis and um, understanding the industries more to ultimately a sales role. Like if you're mm-hmm. a managing director at Morgan Stanley, your real job is to be on the road um, building relationships and partnerships with companies and CEOs and boards so that when they're ready to IPO or when they're ready to sell the business or they're ready to buy another business uh, or do a financing of some sort, you know, you're the first person that they call. They use right? You, right. And you're basically like, choose Morgan Stanley, not Goldman Sachs, and that's kind of like the pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's sales, which is great. Um, I just said, well, I don't really want to do that. That's not what I want to yeah. do for the next 15 years. Um, and I was on this track that was a pretty good track because I had made it through all these cuts. So I was fairly well positioned. So it was like, do I leave now or do I wait another year or two? And then, I mean, the, the pay ramps up so quickly. I feel like a lot of people find themselves in that position. You You're kinda, like, I'm not super happy, yeah. but I'm close enough to like... The brass ring. Right. Yeah. Do I stick it out? Do I? And, and, and the reality is, it's a... I, I, what I did for pers- for me, I didn't want to put myself in a position where I would have to make a really irrational choice just mm-hmm. financially, right? Because if you're, you know, if, if pay goes up and up and up, you know, for the next year, two, three years, when I'm in that role, I make VP a year later, a couple of years after that, I make executive director, and you're sitting there making a lot of money. You're like, well, do I go do something that I really want to do? And your alternative is so much like to stay. Mm-hmm. It's so much better, right? You're sort mm-hmm. of like, well, I could just stick it out for two or three more years. And then all of a sudden you blink and, you know, you're 40. Right. And you're like, oh, well. The ship sailed. Yeah. Like, do I really want to do this now? Do I have the skill set for it? Like, all these sorts of things. Um, and for me, I just didn't want to put myself in that position. And mm-hmm. so I started really looking for things that were outside of finance, um, more entrepreneurial. And uh, and that's what led me to kind of get back to Colorado and start 
uh, what was originally called Denver Cyberknife. Denver Cyberknife. Yep, it's a it's now a Nova Cancer Care is the company. It's, okay, I, I sold it, but it's still operating. Um, and was this an idea that you had for the company, or did you co-found with others? So it was a healthcare services company. Okay. So this wasn't like a. This was less of a hey, create a new thing that doesn't exist in the world from a business model standpoint, um, but rather more of like an execution play. So the way it came about is uh, another West Point grad was a serial entrepreneur here in Colorado, neurosurgeon. He had started two or three companies he had sold for, you know, ranging from 50, to, 50 million to 250 million. But he was never the CEO. He was always like the guy who kind of came up with the, one of them was a company called Lanx. It was a spinal implant company. So he built all the spinal implants and basically like, you know, came up with all the patents and everything. But he but, didn't want like... But he didn't, he was never CEO. He never yeah. ran the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, I like to... You know, I, I see talent here and I'd like, you know, I have this idea for a freestanding, so not hospital affiliated uh, radio, radio surgery center, which is a form of radiation therapy. And at the time, there was only one other sort of non-hospital affiliated one in the country. Mm-hmm. And it was in Miami and they pulled a lot of people from like the Caribbean and from um, Latin America. And so this was relatively novel. And uh, he was like, so the, the gig would be, you know, if you, you want to be an equity owner, then you got to put money in. Um, so we financed it with equity capital and with debt. The debt was personally guaranteed, backed by what was then Colorado Business Bank. Um, so I was like signing on the dotted line for debt guarantees that were like many multiples in excess of my like what I had behind me. Right. So it was kind of like if the business failed, I was declaring personal <laughs> bankruptcy like multiple times. Oh my right? God. Um, it's risky. It was risky, risky, but it was also like. It's easier to take that risk when you don't have a lot of capital, right? <laughs> Where you're like, here's all my money. Here's like basically like I paid off my student debt yeah. um, for, from business school with like my first bonus. My second bonus came. I basically invested all of that in into the company mm-hmm. and then signed a bunch of debt guarantees that were way more than that. Right. And then started the company. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it's just it needed to get cash flow really quickly. I mean, we had we had to pay, you know, we had to buy the, I bought this five and a half million dollar piece of equipment. Uh, built built the center, had to hire all the people, so nurses, radiation therapists, medical physicists, like PhDs who do the physics stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, built the billing component, did all the advertising. Started, the, you know, like that's a big undertaking. Three three months in, I think we had our first TV commercial out there. Um, wow! And uh, and so it was like every for the first year. I mean, we were we were like I had like a month of payroll in the bank. And it was just like manage manage accounts receivables, make sure that the insurance companies and Medicare were paying us. Like, mm-hmm. you know, be on. I mean, I was talking to the banker like every other week. I mean, just to, because we were managing our line of credit, and so right. um, got it to the point where it became pretty cash flow positive. Had you know good, good strong free cash flow margins, uh, good revenue. I did a deal with a physician group that um, that is what created Next Oncology, and then that, then it really took off because it kind of solidified some of our referral patterns. And uh, and then sold it in 2015, and so it was a good a good outcome for that investor. Um, for me, it was a good outcome financially, but more than that, it was you know I had been operating at like the 50,000 foot level with Ed Morgan Stanley from a healthcare standpoint, like you know talking to Medtronic and Edwards Life Sciences and HCA, like these big companies, but not really in the weeds of healthcare. Right. And uh, and this you know from day one, it was like I mean I had to I had to like hire I had to like you know, within the first two months of leaving Morgan Stanley, I was like, "All right, I have to get contracts 
with all the insurance companies, and I have to negotiate those contracts, and I have to like get our Medicare number, and I have to figure out how to get patients in the door, and I have to like get a licensure done. I have to hire the right people. So getting it's like into a the crash weeds. course. I mean, what great experience! I'm sure when you look back. Yeah, yeah, you it just, was totally great. You just did it all, and yeah. then you could apply that. I'm sure to yep. things that were to come. Yep. But I feel like that's the best way to learn. Oftentimes, it's it totally just to kind of throw it. Just you know, jump right in, right. especially in healthcare where it's it is so complex and it's. It's I feel complex like it's kind in of a ways, convoluted industry. It's in totally ways, convoluted. You know? it's, it's complex in ways that are um, that are completely inefficient and, and are illogical. I was going to say like silly, honestly. Yeah, they're, like it's they're silly and illogical. Unnecessarily difficult. Yeah, there's. I mean, I mean, just the fact that the three party, like the the third party payer system, makes it such. Mm-hmm. Right, like most industries, there's a producer of a good or a service and there's a buyer of a good or a service, and there may be intermediaries therein. Right, so if you're um, if you're Procter and Gamble and you're making diapers, yes, you're going to sell it to um, to the retailer, right? And then the retailer target is going to sell it to the end consumer. Um, but it's linear. In healthcare, it's like you have the the good. Let's say uh, whether it's a drug or it's the physician, and even then it's like there's almost four parties sometimes. But let's say it's a physician providing service. So for us, it's like we were delivering radiation therapy, mm-hmm. right? So we were providing the service. Um, it wasn't paid for by the patient per se, right? It is to a certain degree. You got to pay your copay and your deductible, and you hit that immediately. But it's really paid by Medicare, by the insurance company, and and then if it's like a commercial insurance company, well, who's the customer? Well, not the patient. It's actually the patient's employer. It's like eight different call centers. Yeah. Right. There's like all these things, and so like, and and so the incentives are all misaligned, and right. so like figuring that out at a very like tactical base level. Um, I think for anybody who wants to operate in healthcare and innovate is is super important. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for your service again in a different way because <laughs> that sounds just like a tough a tough slug, but yeah. it ended up great yeah. and successful. Yeah. And so then, where did you go after the sale? Were you like, okay, I'm going to take a break, or what did you no, jump so into I, next? No, so I I am um, I have a, I've like joked that I have like professional ADD. Um, so actually, in the midst of all that, so I started I started the company in 2009. I sold it in 2015. In 2010, I started working on the side with a former employee who was a medical physicist, and he left, and uh, he runs National Jewish's um, research laboratory now for automated lung cancer detection. So uh, Steve Humphreys and I, and then a third co-founder, said Dennis, started a company called Safe Image MD. So that was a software platform for storing and sharing and viewing medical imaging data. So think of it as like Dropbox for CT and MRI. Okay. Um, and it was a SaaS product, so the, the, the buyer was the physician practice, so the non-radiology like a like their neurosurgery practice or a pulmonology practice um, would pay us a fee on a monthly basis, a seat license fee, and then there were other things like how many transfers they made and the, you know how many gigabytes of storage they were using, things like that. And we built something where they could manage all their medical imaging data for their patients, so those CT scans and digital X-rays and MRIs, and actually kind of manipulate it just in any browser. So whether it's on an iPad or on their PC or whatever, they could like zoom in and out. They could change the contrast and the leveling and things like that. And then it was a free application for patients. So if you had a, let's say you like busted up your knee at knee surgery when you're in college or something like that, um, and they give you a CD, you could like load it in there, and then three years later you're skiing and you bust it up again. You know you can like you can give that to the doctor Love right that. then and there. Yeah. So we did that all nights and weekends. We didn't raise any outside capital. Um, we got that to cash flow positive, like not a lot, but we we got mm-hmm. it to a point where it was just like kicking off you know cash every month. And we let it run and thought about raising money, but just didn't think the market was big enough. Uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty big. It's about like a five, $8 billion market. Um, but 
in our estimation, we were just like it was it was early. It was definitely mm-hmm. the timing was way off. I mean, just think about back in 2010, 11, Dropbox itself was still new. Right. 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 The CD, DVD thing was still prevalent. Yeah. It still is today, actually. I, I mean, like, if you get your... Yeah. I actually have... My boyfriend actually broke his collarbone and they gave him a Yeah. It's CD. like... And now you're like, now you're like, where do I put this thing? Yeah. I, I like, didn't have, like, a portal. Where is there a CD I, I could stick this in, right? Um, so we were way too early with that, but we sold that in 2016. So after I sold Next Oncology, I was basically working on the sale of that company. Um, there was a third company called Term Scout, and there's another Term Scout in Colorado now, but it's a different one. They, they bought the name. Term Scout was a sales intelligence data company, first focused on commercial real estate, um, so building leads for, like, really curated leads for commercial real estate brokers, tenant rep, and then uh, pivoted into, or just kind of added on, we kept doing the commercial real estate, added on for, like, telecom. So okay. Comcast Business, CenturyLink, Level 3, they were all customers. Um, and it was a data company. So I co-founded that uh, with three other folks, um, I was not the CEO. I was not the main kind of idea person. I was more of like an operational co-founder. I was the COO, CFO, mm-hmm. and we had raised money for that. And I left that in 2015 as well, and uh, and basically like co- sort of cleared the plate in 2015 when I sold Next Oncology to focus all my efforts on Sondermine, which I had founded in 2014. Okay. Uh, with Sean, my co-founder. Okay. Yeah. So we can just jump right in. Just jump right Let's into just that. Yeah. Jump right into Sondermine. So, how'd you meet Sean? Is he somebody that you had worked with in one of the previous ones? Or no. Okay. Well, Sid. So my CTO for Sondermind uh, was my co-founder from Safe Image. Okay. But he didn't co. So that's one of the one of the great things about building businesses is you build these relationships with people that are you know just super deep on a personal and professional right. relationship. Yeah. Um, trustworthy. So yeah. Sean, you met. Yeah. So Sean. So I. So the idea for Sondermind came about from a couple of different points of view. One was um, back in like 2012, I was looking for a therapist. So having some family problems, um, I knew that the Parity Act had been passed, which the Parity Act uh, Congress passed in like 2009, 2010. And what it basically said was uh, insurance companies cannot make mental health benefits any different than the physical health benefits. So generally insurance companies don't limit the number of times you can see a doctor, right? Like you wouldn't go every day, but if you really wanted to, you could. Um, and that's the same for mental health. So that was that that was put into law in 2010, and I knew this. Moreover, I was like paying all this money for premiums, mm-hmm. right? Like health insurance is expensive. Um, I was the employer and the employee, right? So I was kind of like paying out of both pockets, mm-hmm. and like I'm gonna get something out of these, out of these ben- like out of this insurance. For, like I don't really do anything with it, so I should like get some benefit out of it. And so I go in the insurance directory, I start looking for a therapist, and you know, you put in your zip code, and here comes a list of providers, right? And they're like, check the box for accepting new clients. And you call the first one. You don't know if they're any good, or if they're like a good fit for you, but you're like, whatever, I'll just call them. It's closest. Or it's closest, whatever, or you yeah. know. Um, and leave a message because she doesn't answer, and you wait a few days, she doesn't call back, and you call again, and she just still doesn't answer. And you go to the next one on the list, and the same thing happens, and the next one on the list, and the fourth one finally answers, you know, a week and a half, two weeks later, and you're like, oh, sweet. And she's like, oh, actually, I don't take insurance clients anymore. I'm like, what? And then the next one is, oh, I don't take any clients. I'm closed. I have full practice. And the next one is, oh, I've moved to Tulsa. And the next, I mean, just like, I don't deal with men. I don't deal with this. I don't like, on and on it goes. And uh, finally, I persist. I'm just, I'm, whether, you know, if you're being nice, you could say I'm uh, tenacious. If you're, <laughs> if you're being realistic, you can say I'm just like a stubborn mule. Um Either way, like I was like, I'm not going to give this 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 is going to work. We're well, going to make this thing happen. Because also you wanted it too. Yeah. Like you're in a position where you like, listen, I could benefit from this. Right. Why well, is I totally this so wanted. Difficult. I, I could have like paid out of pocket. Right. 
But the reality is I was just like, no, like this is this like, should work. This should work. This is like yeah. what this is for. Um, finally, I found somebody. The clinical care was great. Um, but the consumer experience around it, it kind of stunk, right? You go to the little dingy basement office with no windows and, um, you know, it's kind of depressing in and of itself where you're like, <laughs> right. okay, good thing I'm not suffering from depression. Um, and then you're like, <laughs> then you, you know, you go and you're trying to pay for your copay and she's like, oh, I can't take your HSA card. You got to write me a check. I'm like, we don't take MasterCard. Where's the check? Who has a checkbook? <laughs> like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, right. um, you know, try rescheduling the point, just everything around it, right? right. It was just challenging. And I remember thinking to myself, besides the, like, wow, this is a terrible like patient experience, which I was really focused on in running in running Inova Cancer Care, was two things. One, I, I just kept thinking, like, I have the means to pay out of pocket, right? Like, I'm just being stubborn. I'm just, like, going to use my insurance. But if I really needed to find somebody and pay 125 bucks a session or something like that, you like, could. I could. Um, but most people can't. Right. right, like the average, average household income in the country is seventy, eighty thousand a year. Um, you know, hundred bucks, two hundred bucks every other week for one or two family members. That's just like not in the budget. Like that's not possible uh, for a family of four. And so that struck me. And then the other thing that struck me was like this took three months. <laughs> like, right. and I was just dealing with some, you know, stuff. On the home front. It could pass, and right? depending on what you're dealing with, right? Yeah. It could have maybe passed already. Right. But maybe. moreover, what if it was like, what if I was severely depressed? Right. What if I was like, you know, what if I moved to a city and I had you serious mental the- illness? I was like, I have like bipolar disorder or something like that. Or I have like, you know, I have substance use disorder and I'm, I'm like at risk of like falling back into some mm-hmm. bad pattern. Like all these like things that could be really meaningfully negative. Right. Um, that you can't wait two or three months to deal with. Right. You have to like get in. That just kept weighing on right. me. So I started looking for things around that. And then the other side of the coin was I'd seen my younger sister's journey as a therapist. So my sister Jennifer, um, is a, she's less than two years, two years younger than me. She's a licensed professional counselor. So she had gone from like her master's to then working in an employed setting for a number of years, building up real expertise, like dealing with adolescence and trauma and things like that. And, um, and then going into private practice after you know four or five years of doing that in a full-time setting. And that was always her goal. Like she went into this field as much for professional reasons as it was for personal reasons. Like it was a life choice as much as it was like a career choice. Because um, she was like, one day I want to have kids and I want to have sort of the flexibility to, you know, sort of schedule my my work life around the kid life and things like mm-hmm. that. And so she started her practice and she was like, all right, if I build it, they will come. Right. And that's what she thought. Right. Like that she, she knew enough people who had that had done that. And it, she really struggled. And she didn't struggle because she wasn't an amazing therapist. She just struggled because, like, all the business stuff sucks. And where do I get clients? And I said, well, get in network with the insurance companies. And she said, I tried, but they're saying no. And even if I did get in, how do I deal with billing and collections and all this stuff, like all the things around that? And I remember talking to her and saying, oh, little sister, like, you know, <laughs> like pat her on the head. Like, there's all these companies that are called management service organizations that in every vertical in healthcare – like the one I'm running in oncology, Next Oncology, are there to sort of provide all the business and marketing and back-end support so that the clinicians, the doctors, the nurses, whomever, can focus on providing great clinical care and the business people just handle the rest. And it's a, just a very, very, like, well-trod kind of route in healthcare. And she was like, I don't know what she's talking about. So I started looking, and she was right. Like, it didn't really exist in, uh, in mental health, for, particularly for private practice therapists. Um, and so I was like, well, I can do that, and I can 
I know how to sort of build technology solutions with partners. And so then I, I really wanted to find a clinical partner. So that's how I found Sean. Okay. And then there was this real estate component. So back to back to your real my estate real estate license. thing. And then Term Scout had this commercial real estate piece to it as well. And one of the key things, so besides my sister, my cousin's a clinical psychologist. So I had been able to talk to all these different providers, all these different mental health therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists. To really understand the pain to points. To really understand their pain points from the right. provider point of view. And one of them was this real estate pain where they were like, how do I, like, you know, it's like that little dingy basement office. That's the only one that the landlord will rent. Like the landlord's not really in the business of like renting single offices, right? Like, mm-hmm. like the one we're doing this podcast and like would be a perfect office for a therapist. It's soundproofed, right? right. Like, um, and you set up some couches, like this would be like a therapist's office. Right. But like the landlord of this building, the owner of this building isn't going to like rent 50 of these out, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so the idea was, well, let's, let's build kind of a real estate component and really build all the back end pieces for the providers so that we can ultimately provide a much better solution for individuals, for clients, consumers to connect. And then long-term, the real goal was let's use that whole data infrastructure we built. With the, We built our own EMR and practice management solution to really actually understand what quality means because it's such like an esoteric thing in mental health, right? It's like, let's, let's get a better understanding of all the factors that are out there and how we can drive toward truly better clinical outcomes. So that was what really started, and that's how I met Sean. Was he had a he had a private practice uh, as a therapist. That's Sean, my co-founder, mm-hmm. and um, and was was doing some kind of office office sharing uh, work, and had built uh, a business around kind of a building a community. So we partnered, um, and from that created Sondermind in 2014. And he ran the real estate piece of it for the first year, and then by the time I sold Next Oncology a year later and left Term Scout. Um, Kind of, I focused all my efforts on that, and then actually a couple of years after that was when we split the company into two. So uh, we found that the, that while there's a lot of synergies, VCs and investors, uh, especially at the time, were like, like basically I had like everything that made it VC uninvestable as possible, right? It was like it's in healthcare, which wasn't sexy at the time. It was in behavioral health. People were like, is this even a market? Um, it had real estate, and then on top of it all, we had built it as a franchisor to sort of solve the capital needs, and so it was like all these things. VCs were like, "No, we're not gonna, we're not gonna really touch that." So we separated it into two in 2017, and the real estate business is called Humanly now. Okay. Uh, and Sean runs that. It's a totally different company. Uh, I'm still involved. I'm still on the board, and uh, it's got 22 locations across three states: um, Georgia, Connecticut, and Colorado, and has you know offices of like. 10 to 20 uh, therapy offices per location uh, that are either owned by a franchise, like the locations are owned by franchisee or owned by the company. And then Sondermine was everything else but the real estate. Hi, everyone. It's Sam. We hope you all had a happy holiday and a great start to the new year. We are super excited to continue the weekly rollout of episodes and hope you are too. Up next... Mark and Emily discuss his experience fundraising, his passionate leadership style, and the meaning of success. I I just love what you guys are doing. I'm so curious just to dive into a little bit more of like that fundraising piece and kind of what we've seen happen with mental health in the past few years. But um, more so, Sondermine has been deemed a unicorn. (laughs) Number one, how does that make you feel? Number two, really what was... What was the shift in fundraising for you guys? 
So like how did you change the minds of the VCs? I mean, it really, the early days, and I've told some other entrepreneurs this recently over the last, you know, last year and a half, um, there was a woman who was fundraising for her company and she had it all planned out and she had, it was good, she had good kind of early stage product market to fit and she said, you know, I'm going to launch the fundraise on this date and by a month later, I'll have at least two term sheets and by a month after that, I'll have, you know, closed the round for my seed funding and I was like, Okay, like I hope that happens, and not, and I'm in. Like, count me in as an investor. Um, I'm not going to lead the round, but like, you know, c- count me in for, as as part of that syndicate. Um, and you know, a month later, she's like, "Well, I haven't got any term sheets yet, but there's still a lot of good, you know, good prospects." And a month after that, she's like, "I still haven't gotten any term sheets." I'm getting a little worried. And a month after that, she was like, "This is really hard." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, no shit." Yeah, I like, knew that. Yeah, I told you it's hard. Uh, yeah. I was like, I talked to probably. You know, a hundred different investors. You know, VCs from more than that, probably 150 from you know late 2015 to early 2018, um, and all and you know knows from all of them. Now I would raised like I continued on with like raising money from some angel investors, um, you know, pseudo friends and family, mostly angels that I kind of had some personal relationships with or some professional ones uh, who really did see the vision and saw like kind of what what could happen here. Um, but it was it was like pulling teeth. I mean, it was really really difficult. Um, what shifted is when we raised our seed round, uh, we finally had some capital. And I mean, we raised our seed round in 2018 with Kickstart Seed Fund, who's a great investor, you know, oh, based, yeah. based in Utah. We know Kickstart. Um, and they've been they've been awesome. So Kurt Roberts on the board. Um, he's on the board of another company here in Denver called Havenly. Um, and uh, and Gavin, who founded the firm, is a business school classmate of mine actually. Um, so they've been great partners. So we raised that round and it was really like, okay, I think we can get from here to here. And we did. Right. And so it was like, all right, let's get from whatever we were at, you know, de minimis, it was called it like 200,000 annual mm-hmm. run rate revenue. Right. When we raised our seed round, um, to, I was like, let's get, we're going to get to a million by the end of the year, million run rate. Um, and we, we did that before then, right? So we were like accelerated. We were able to get some things going, really prove the model out. Um, and then the the Series A, that was where I like I actually made a decision to to raise meaningfully less than what we could have. So our seed round, inclusive of the notes that converted, was a little less than three million, and our Series A was exactly three million. Okay. And we had kind of opportunity to raise you know six seven million. Um, but I I really want I was like I know what to do with three. And um, and I would rather just execute on that. I believe in sort of efficiency of capital, and uh, and and by that I mean not just like being efficient with capital, but actually what what not having too much money in the bank account can do from a pressure standpoint to to help companies really find innovative solutions and be more efficient in the way that they build the business, especially in the early stages. It's like it's one of the biggest gifts that you that you have. And when you remove that gift by putting a bunch of money on the balance sheet too early, I think you end up searching for sort of the easier, faster solutions, which may not be the things that actually can help drive the business and scale more meaningfully later. So we raised our Series A like a year after our Series B. Um, and then the like we we I mean we I think we had we almost had 34 months from 2018 to 2020 were I think we had, yeah, in about a three-year period, we had maybe two or three months that were only single-digit month-over-month growth. Um, every other month was, you know, 
mid-teens to mid-20s month-over-month growth. And so that just sort of steady state, which when you put it on a graph, starts to look exponential. Um, that really led us into a spot where by you know fall of 2019, we were getting some inbound from a lot of investors for our Series B. And that's when I started really kind of raising, you know, going into the fundraising process for our Series B. And we, were, and we had, you know, a lot of interest because at that point, mental health was becoming more interesting to people and, and investors were like, hey, this is a space that's really, really big. There's not a lot of clear leaders at this point. Let's find who we're going to tend to take a bigger bet on. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I've lost track of time, but I'm pretty sure that's right around COVID, right? I don't know. It was before that. Right before it? Yeah. So we, we like signed our term sheet uh, for our Series B in January 2020. Okay. Um, and then it was like February or something. And then like March was when like everything started shutting down. Have I'm curious with the – I mean it's hard not to talk about, but – um, I'm sure you get asked all the time, but with COVID and the quarantine, did you guys just see a, a giant uptick of users? And no, no. So it was interesting for us. We, I, was, I would say, like we had as many tailwinds as we did headwinds uh, from COVID. So one, so some of our things that helped us was actually the uh, the therapist mindset to being open to working with a company like us opened up quite a bit because all of a sudden they went from. You know, a lot of therapists across the country went from like operating these practices all by themselves or with their, you know, two or three other folks, um, you know, sharing an office together and seeing their clients in person uh, to then like having to do it from home. And we had in-person and video kind of both uh, as part of our platform, part of our offering. Moreover, we remove all the financial risk for the therapist. Um, So we really make it easy for them to sort of like do as much or as little. Like there's not like minimums they have to commit to or anything like that. They're just like it's sort of turn the spigot on or off. Um, So that really – just the whole pandemic opened up uh, our recruiting processes a lot for how we brought therapists onto the platform. So that was one of the real tailwinds. One of the headwinds was we partner with all these medical practices. So think like your primary care physician or OBGYN. I saw a list like Kaiser Permanente. And yeah, I mean like there's there's ones. the larger groups like yeah. Health, like uh, Health One here in Colorado or Centura, right. uh, and then there's just other you know like just you know we've we've partnered with you know hundreds of primary care practices, and what they do is they're doing screening of mental health when you come in for your annual visit. So that's just what happens. That's just what, like, they're incented to do so by the insurance companies, by Medicare at this point. And so they're doing these screener questions. And when they identify somebody who might have low-level depression or, or some anxiety, um, they're like, well, what do I do with this? I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm like a primary care physician, right, and family practice doctor. So they send them to us. So our whole channel during, particularly during the first, you know, six to 12 months of the pandemic, of that channel coming from these primary care practices completely dried up. Why did it dry up? Because nobody was going to their annual visits, mm, right? Didn't think about that. So that channel dried up. We hadn't done a lot of direct consumer marketing up to that point, so we really had to build that muscle, which was difficult for us because we we hadn't done it, and there were other competitors out there who had been purely digital, right? Like one of our right. value props had been, hey, we're in-person and digital. Like that had been one of our differentiators. Well, guess what? The in-person thing was removed. So, so we were like you- – we were only digital – and we were then trying to market in a way that we hadn't marketed before to consumers who had been marketing, getting marketed to from people who were only digital and had been doing it for three or four years. So that was one of the challenges for us we really had to overcome. I wouldn't, I mean, I don't obviously know how the system works that well, but I, that you wouldn't have thought that. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that's, that's actually not, 
I remember saying it like in the first month or two um, internally was I was like because we saw these we saw these drops in uh, in, in interest like in, in initial inquiries uh, and like what we call new client requests and people uh, jumping on and saying hey I want to match with a therapist during March April May of 2020. And everybody was scratching their heads, like, why is this? Like, everybody's talking about, like, this mental health is, like, it's, like, it's so hard. You know, COVID is, like, so hard on your mental health. And it's true. And what I was positing was when everything is changing, like, just as humans, like, if you, if you throw, all right, my whole social structure has now changed or just been removed. Um, the way that I work is completely changed. The way that I probably parent, if you have kids, is completely different because the schooling has all changed. Um, oh, by the way, there was a lot of social social unrest, a lot of change going on. George Floyd, um, lots of other things were happening in that you know in that Q2 of 2020. Um, throw all that together, yes, it creates a lot of stress, creates a lot of anxiety. But what it also does is it limits your willingness to try one more thing that's different, right? So what we saw was an a decrease in inquiries or of like willingness to be able to convert or actually engage in therapy for the first time, but a market increase in people who were already engaged in therapy. So the utilization of care, if you were already connected with the therapist, that went up. So it was like that because then it wasn't a new thing you were doing. Right. But pe- right? It, yeah, that makes sense. I, I could I could see where that would be the case. You know, like yeah. if you're already so stressed and under so much pressure and feeling all those all of those other emotions, yeah. adding something else. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it, this is changing, which I'm going to get to in a second. But there was a stigma yeah. of like this is going to be really uncomfortable. This is going to yeah. be intrusive for me. Why would I put myself through something that's uncomfortable when I'm already living yeah. uncomfortable that's right. in this world. And it, <laughs> and it is uncomfortable. Like, let's be right. honest, like therapy, I mean, maybe not your first session, but like it's meant to push. To push you, It's right. meant to like make you some uncomfortable and, and like really deal with those things that are underlying that are causing whatever it is that brought you into therapy in the first place. Right. So it's important for people to recognize like, hey, it, it, it will feel a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But that actually is what growth feels like. That's actually what improvement feels like. Mm-hmm. Just like, if you're working out and you're not huffing and puffing or you're feeling the pain in your muscles, you're probably not actually doing much. Right. Right? Like right. you're probably you actually sweat not. sweat a little. Yeah, you got to sweat a little. You got to mm-hmm. feel the pain uh, in order to grow, in order to improve. Right. Well, yeah, I guess getting to the destigmatization, hard word to say, <laughs> um, you know, that we're kind of seeing mm-hmm. unfold in yeah. certain ways. I have an article that I thought was interesting that I wanted going to get your thoughts on. It was with, you know, how Facebook is doing the whole meta mm-hmm. thing, right? Yeah. So they did a study on Instagram and, like, teenage girls and the social media pressures and how they're developing mental health issues, mm-hmm. eating disorders, things like that. Um, and there's a brand, a cosmetic brand, Lush. Oh, yeah. Remember? Yep. They are going to shut down all of their social channels and lose yep. out on approximately $13 million, yep. which I thought was interesting. And I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, what we're seeing happen in the social world as far as mental health goes yeah i i mean i i've seen that article with the lush ceo it's what i what i find is interesting i love it i think it's great uh on many many levels i actually think it's an amazing business move because the press that they've gotten is worth well more than 13 million dollars right that they've gotten from this (laughs) so like it's actually like it was a perfect move right right um but uh yeah i think like social media i mean i have three kids and uh, and they're all at the age where they want to be engaged in social media, and, and generally, you know, my ex and I don't allow it. Mm-hmm. Um, we and and that said, it's it's going to be part of their lives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we bought a company in August 
uh, called Quantify, which is a data machine learning kind of um, predictive analytics company that had been focused on mental health for the past six years. So they've like, they've you know got all these patents. They've done you know a bunch of peer-reviewed journal articles of, of their research and what they published, and then the product that they've built really it incorporated it brought in all these data points. Um, from people who, from when you opt in, so if you want to opt in and say, yeah, like I'm, I'm open to sharing in a very private setting, uh, just allowing you to sort of pull things from my social profiles, from Facebook, uh, you know, from Instagram, things like that, as well as from my public profiles, uh, from Twitter and Reddit, and uh, and taking all these inputs and then actually feeding that back to you and saying, hey, like. You know that plus they 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 pull in things like Fitbit data um, and so like other wearable data to start saying hey like we're seeing you know changes in your behavior that's really in the way that you're writing about it right and so and oh by the way like maybe what is happening is you need to sleep more or maybe you need to actually just fix the time that you wake up like that might actually be more impactful to your mental health than the amount of sleep you get things like that that's really and interesting. so we bought this company. Because we were building our machine learning and, and, and AI technologies within the company anyway, right? Uh, and they were just so clear. And there's, I've done a couple of podcasts with um, like uh, on that, and some mm-hmm. interviews with with Glenn, our, who's now chief data officer, the CEO of that company. Um, but the whole idea was, can we use all this information that's being put out there, right? And I'm I'm you know sort of piggybacking on the social point because I think right. it starts there. But there's more information, right? Like we're interacting with these screens. Um, all the right. time, your Apple Watch, right? We're interacting like with our wearables, mm-hmm. and it's not going to that th- those data inputs are not going to decrease over time, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to we're going to be more and more of them. So, can we take that? Can we take all the power that we've developed over the last five, ten years, fifteen years with machine learning models, um, with all the computing power we have now, and actually put that to use? That is more than just hey, how can marketers sell you the next thing? Right or be better targeted at getting you know those pairs of shoes into my thirteen year old's like Instagram feed or whatever. But how can we actually how can like, we actually help you? use it to actually okay, like let's give you a better understanding and not just you but your right. therapist. Right. Right. So that we can actually measure what it's back to sort of our mission around improving clinical outcomes. Right. Can we actually measure how these things all inter- intertwine? Because this is what makes to me at least mental health so fascinating and so complex is that you know you're. I mean, back to my old business, a cancer diagnosis isn't going to change from some article that I read, mm-hmm. right, um, positively or negatively. It might change my behavior, which then might have a corresponding effect on my physical health, but that might take a while. But a mental health diagnosis could literally change just by consuming content, right? Like, you know, world events such as, oh, I don't know, an attempted coup, you know, inside the United States in the first week of January can like be very triggering for a lot of people and could like actually make your diagnosis worse, mm-hmm. right? Um, as can if I give you an appropriate piece of clinical content to help understand how your mind works and how you can look at, look at the world through different lenses, that can actually improve, right? Just like consuming information can change your mental health. And that's what's so different about it than physical health, which makes it so much harder to measure and track because we're consuming information every single Left, second. right, and center. Right? Mm-hmm. Like all the time. Like you just mm-hmm. walk down the street. You're getting bombarded with pieces of information. And measuring that and seeing how that affects our physical or our mental health, which then has a direct effect on our physical health, is to me like where we can go with this right. and what we're really trying to orient to. I think that's really cool. And I – 
was a runner in college and still slightly am. Um, but I feel like if you looked at my Apple Watch, mm-hmm. you could definitely tell how I was feeling just yeah. based on, like, you know, how much exercise and things like that. Totally. That's really inter- I never thought about that. That's very interesting. Kind of piggybacking off the mental health thing, I want to talk about, I also saw an article here that you guys were voted one of the best places to work in Denver. Yeah, a few times. Yeah, that's so neat. And I'm curious, your take on, as CEO, I'm you know, your thoughts on leadership and really what does it take to have happy and healthy employees? Something else that we're also seeing trending post and pre-COVID always, you know, yeah. but your thoughts on leadership and creating a good environment. So one of the things when I started the company was really, really important to me uh, was creating, really building what I, what we now term internally is, uh, is building a career defining place to work. And so I'm fortunate to have a number of board members who've built uh really big career-defining places to work, like Jonathan Bush with Athena Health and Kent there with DeVita uh, and Eric Rosa with, you know, DataLogix and now with CrossFit. Um, and having those board members and, and, you know, talking to them on a very frequent basis, uh, one of the reasons I brought them in was because of how much of a defined culture they built within their companies. Mm-hmm. And so that was really important to me was have a place where, you know, at the end of a career at any point, you could look back and go, wow, like, I can put a circle and sort of like see where all the offshoots are of other career choices because of where I was, was, you know, because of being at Sondermind and because of what I learned and because of what I, how I grew. Now that also means it's probably not going to be the easiest place you work. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we we don't kind of say, Hey, you come here and like, it's going to be super chill and you're going to, you know, it's just going to be like really relaxing. And, you know, (laughs) like that's just not, that's not the culture. Um, But it is like, people are going to be super passionate uh, we're going to be really focused on the mission. We're really focused on our customers, which is both the clients as well as the therapists. Um, we're really focused on on each other. You know, I think that's um, – I, I do like a weekly uh, email I send out every Sunday night to the whole company. And I have for the past, I don't know, three or four years. Um, and often I do a little video, like just a video message. Sometimes it's an important thing and, hey, here's this thing we're doing. We're doing a big, like, you know, I'm doing a bunch of listening tour roundtables around DEI and stuff like that. Uh, I'm talking about that. Or like the one I did last night was just, hey, I hope you all have a great Thanksgiving. Like right. uh, it's the last month of the year. Let's work hard. But let's, like, make sure that we're checking in on each other and spending some time. Like just reminding people, like, hey, that's why we're here. It's been hard. I mean, I'll, it, I'd be lying if I didn't say – for me as a leader, like the last, you know, the last 18 months um, have been not as – I don't feel like I've been able to be as effective in a remote setting as I am uh, in an in-person setting. Mm-hmm. And that's just because of the way I operate. Like I like to I like to spend a lot of time with people um, and everybody. And even if it's just, hey, two or three minutes – what are you working on? Like, you know, how, how was your weekend? How's the dog? Oh, he's out of the he's out of the vet. That's good. I'm glad he's not sick anymore. Like, whatever it is, right. you know, like building those connections, being there, because it models what I want everybody to do with each other, mm-hmm. and that's what I think helped us. You know, we were never like oriented toward these awards, like the Denver Business Journal things. Uh, it's great, right? It was like. You just send out the survey. An outside firm does the whole, does all the analytics around it. Um, but it was always like, let's be very deliberate about the things we do, the way we hire, our core values. Let's talk about our core values very frequently. Um, let's make sure that that's incorporated into how we hire, into how we, uh, you know, manage, how we, into how we promote, uh, into how we fire. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and really emphasize like that these you know these core values are what define our culture, uh, and then from there, letting I mean letting people kind of do their best work. That's mm-hmm. kind of my philosophy. That's awesome. Love it. Well, I am curious, a piece of advice, you you kind of mentioned something a little bit earlier, but I'm going to circle back to it. For maybe an entrepreneur who's just getting started, or I'm going to pose you a second option, an entrepreneur who is working to scale their company with little success. With little success. With little success. Hmm. Uh, I mean, that's such a loaded question because it could be like, what part of the scaling is not working, well, right? Like, is it maybe rejection? Who's experiencing some rejection? Like from investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, if you, <laughs> you're going to get rejected uh, by investors, so I think the real the real opportunity is can you listen? Can you really listen to investors after they say no, um, and understand why they're saying no? Are they saying no because they don't believe in the fundamental premise of the business? Um, if you get enough of those, then you should you should at least take a step back and think about, hey, l- let me you know let me look at this. Let me just make sure because if you talk to thirty investors and they're all like, no, because I just don't think there's a real big business here, then you have to really understand. Well, unpack what that means. Is it because it's too narrow a product? Is it because the you know the way you're defining kind of the TAM, um, is it the way you're pitching it? So really, just being honest. I think a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs look at problems, don't do enough real like personal devil's advocate work to say, okay, if I were to be on the other side of this, if I were to convince myself that this is a bad idea, what would be all the things I would say? What would be the research that I would do to find all the things that are wrong with what I want to do? That's interesting. From the early stages. Like that's something that I always try to do is, you know, I assume that, I mean, even with Sondermine, I I assumed, and you kind of heard it, like, I assumed that there were companies that had done this. I assumed that there were like companies that were doing this for therapists. I assumed that there were companies that were doing this. And so then I started looking for the companies that were doing it. I wasn't looking for proof that I was right. I was actually looking for proof that I was wrong or that like that 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 it did exist. And then if it if it did exist in the past and it failed, really understand why. Like why did this fail in the past and why would it work now? Has there been some because like things can work, you know, like MySpace was successful but not as successful as Facebook. Right. Right. Well, why, why was that? Well, because technology changed because, you know, uh, social behavior changed just in society. People were more open with like, so there are fundamental shifts that happen uh, and they can happen rather rapidly, but you still have to be really honest. But I would say use, if you're experiencing a lot of rejection in the fundraising process, use it as an, as an opportunity for gaining more information because most investors are at least, pretty smart and pretty good at pattern matching. Um, what you then have to fa- factor in is, do they actually understand your industry? And that only really matters, I think, for certain, and like it matters for healthcare if you're providing care. So I would really look for investors who understood healthcare because that way, I could, if they were saying no, I could understand the why and what their, what their hangups were, knowing that it came from a place of knowledge as opposed to a place of ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're in if you're in industries that are if you're building a company that's you know relatively deep into a certain technology you into a certain industry that requires a fair amount of um, specific specific information specific knowledge then look for those investors who understand that and then really take their feedback to heart more so than the other 
than the than ones the who naysayers. are kind of like, yeah. Yeah, of course. I think that's applicable to all of life. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't listen to the naysayers. Yeah. Um, for you, Mark, personally, mm-hmm. what is next as a serial entrepreneur? Is this is Sondermine the end of the road or do you have other ideas? Are you working any side projects? No side projects. No I don't have time. Projects. No side projects right now. Um, I have other ideas. I have lots of other ideas. Uh, I've got a couple of good ideas for some nonprofits that I, that might turn into side projects at some point in, you know, in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, I am completely busy. So that professional ADD that I referenced Has before. dwindled? No, it's just, it's just like completely satiated by um, yeah. the breadth and the scope of the things that we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so what, I, I don't feel like the, my journey, both personally from a professional growth standpoint, um, is anywhere near close to being over within Sondermind. Uh, I'm, I'm still making mistakes and, you know, screwing things up every single day. So uh, there's a lot that I can do to improve upon. And and then the company itself, I mean, we're, I think we're in like the first inning. Um, we've got, you know, the, the goal is to build the, the premier uh, technology-enabled mental health provider in the country over the next 15 or 20 years. And I will want to run that as long as I'm the right person to run it. And at a certain point, if I'm not, then I will very, very happily exit stage left and bring somebody in or have somebody promoted from within. Uh, but at this point, I don't think that that's at least as far as the board has told me. Uh, you know, <laughs> not the plan. I, I, that's not the plan for the next at least the next couple of years, two or three years. Okay, good. <laughs> and then, kind of to close us out, I'm going to ask you another hard question. But ultimately, for you personally, mm-hmm. what is your definition of success? My definition of success is doing something that is meaningful, that allows you to continually grow and ultimately lets you have fun while you're doing it. And you define what fun is, mm-hmm. right? So that's I, that's where I feel like I'm um, very fortunate to be successful right now. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm learning and growing all the time. Um, and, you know, to be clear, I mean, growth means you're making mistakes, right? And you're, I mean, that's kind of the only way it really happens well. Um, and uh, and I, and we're making a huge impact. I mean, I, I think that for me, that's really impactful um, personally, it's just knowing like every day there's, you know, I mean, every, every month we're, we're doing tens and tens of thousands of therapy sessions, right? Like uh, we're bringing on, you know, thousands of uh, new clients every day who wouldn't otherwise have access to quality care uh, and really, you know, really changing lives. And that um, that's incredibly gratifying. Yeah. I like that you mentioned fun. I don't think enough people mention that. I mean, the fun for me is in the relationships. Yeah. Like, I think that's where um, having having the ability to build a team of people who are just super focused on the mission really, really goal-driven and hardworking, uh, intelligent, and building, I mean, in my lifelong personal and professional relationships. Uh, I mean, every one of my executive team members, and not just the executive team, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people within the company, um, I feel like I will have relations with for the rest of my life. I mean, you know, for many decades to come. And what those relationships look like from a 
friendship standpoint, from a professional standpoint, I don't know. But I, I'm really confident that this is, you know, this is, for me, going to be the career-defining place to work. That's so awesome. Well, is there anything else you want to add about yourself, your journey, Sondermind, anything else? I think for, I mean, if, you know, for the, the listeners who are, you know, in whatever community or ecosystem, you know, that they're in, um, I found a lot of benefit to, you know, finding those two or three or four other peer entrepreneurs, uh, CEOs, who ideally are actually at a similar stage as you, um, and just making a concerted effort to spend time together, right? Whether it's going and getting coffee or drink or having lunch every once in a while, um, it's really beneficial, you know, just, just, I mean, it's bounce ideas off once in a while. Sometimes it's just to, <laughs> it's just to like, commiserate? just to commiserate and like right. sort of complain about it together. Mm-hmm. Um, and know that the person listening really understands what you're talking they about. They get it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for being here and for sharing your story. Thanks for having we me. so on. appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Sliced Podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode of Sliced, please email newsroom at startupblogpost.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.